You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club in partnership with Bring Change to Mind. I'm Dr. Matthew State, Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco. This is the first event in a new Commonwealth Club speaker series on mental health supported by the John Pritzker Family Fund uh, and dedicated to the memory of Nancy Friend Pritzker. We're tremendously grateful for the support that the fund has provided for psychiatric clinical care, research, and education at UCSF, and for the deep commitment to fighting stigma and prejudice. And it's my great pleasure tonight to be able to introduce our subject and our distinguished panelists. Tonight, we are addressing what is clearly a public health crisis. Whether one looks at the skyrocketing rates of suicide in the United States, the escalating tragedy of serious substance use, or the role that trauma, mental illness, and substance dependence plays in homelessness. What's equally troubling, though, is the stigma and marginalization that continues to confront patients and families who are already suffering. If anyone doubts the impact societal views of mental illness have, all you need to do is know that the largest psychiatric clinics in the United States are housed in the criminal justice system. Can you imagine saying that about heart disease, cancer, or diabetes? Still, there's reason for optimism. Research into the underlying causes of mental illness have advanced spectacularly over the last decade. We know uh, that current evidence-based treatments, both psychotherapies and medications, do work. And for the first time now in decades, just this past year, new approaches to treating depression and suicide have been introduced that will transform the lives of millions of Americans. At the same time, advocacy is fundamentally changing the nature of the conversation about mental health. And tonight, we're delighted to highlight the work in this area by Bring Change to Mind, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending stigma and discrimination surrounding mental illness. Bring Change to Mind encourages everyone, and particularly young people, to start conversations about mental illness, to share resources, and to tell stories to promote a stigma-free world. Their public service announcements have now touched 4 billion lives. Along with their peer-led high school clubs operating in 16 states, Bring Change to Mind is creating a powerful sense of community and transforming feelings of despair into hope. Actress and activist Glenn Close is the co-founder of Bring Change to Mind, and we're thrilled that she was joining us tonight. Glenn's nephew, Kaylin Pick, is also here with us. Kaylin is a gifted artist. He's also co-founder and a driving force behind Change to Mind. He was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder in his late teens and soon thereafter began his treatment and recovery at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. From early on, he has been remarkably courageous in speaking out about his experience, promoting public awareness, encouraging others to join the conversation, and offering hope to those living with serious mental illness. We're thrilled that he could join our panel as well. Also joining our discussion will be Dr. Stephen Hinshaw. He serves on the Scientific Advisory Council of Bring Change to Mind and is professor and vice chair for child and adolescent psychology in our Department of Psychiatry at UCSF. He's also a professor of psychology at University of California, Berkeley. He's renowned internationally, not only for his groundbreaking work on child psychopathology, but for his personal and professional contributions to combating stigma. 
We're honored this evening also to have Hannah Dang, a high school student advocate at Bring Change to Mind. And tonight's panel will be moderated by Judge LaDoris Cordell, retired judge of the Superior Court of California. She's had a remarkable career as a judge, lawyer, consultant, city council member, vice provost at Stanford, former independent police auditor for San Jose, California. Uh, we're very pleased that she's agreed to help lead this very important conversation this evening. So to set the tone for tonight's program, let's start by watching a short video from Bring Change to Mind. Six adults has a mental illness. And we face a stigma that can be as painful as the disease itself. Change a mind about mental illness. And you can change a life. Now, please welcome our panelists to the stage. Hello, and welcome to tonight's program with the Commonwealth Club. I'm Ladaris Cordell, and it's my pleasure to begin to be in conversation with several members of the organization Bring Change to Mind, including founders Glenn Close and Kaylin Pick, Dr. Stephen Henshaw, and high school student Hannah Day. So thank you all for being here tonight. So one in five adults in the United States, that's 43.8 million people, experience mental illness in a given year. And that's because one in 25 adults in the U.S., 9.8 million experience a serious mental illness in a given year. And one in five young people aged 13 to 18 experiences a severe mental disorder at some point in their lives. So I just read two moving and beautifully written books, Another Kind of Madness by Stephen Henschel, and Resilience, Two Sisters and a Story of Mental Illness by Jesse Close, Glenn's sister. And in both books, there is one overriding theme, the stigma of mental illness. So my first question goes to Glenn. Glenn, can you give us just a glimpse of Jesse's life before she was finally diagnosed? What was it like for you, your parents, siblings living with a sister who was bipolar. I'll just start by saying, um, even though my father was a doctor, he was a very gifted surgeon, um, there was no vocabulary in our family for mental health, for mental illness, none. Even though we learned later there's uh, depression, there had been uh, death by suicide, a lot of alcoholism, um, it wasn't ever spoken. Jesse was considered the wild one, the difficult one. 
Um, my, I remember my dad saying, just pull yourself, pull your socks up and, and get a job or pull your socks up and, and finish school. Um, I think if there had been early interventions back then, uh, she would have had a very different life. Um, but she, she prevailed. Um, I'm, we're blessed that she's still with us. And she was properly diagnosed, finally. Right. Um, but we had, no, we had no clue. What no kinds clue. of things was she doing? Can you give an example? Well, she walked out of school at ninth grade and refused to go back. But <laughs> we had a very kind of unusual family structure. My parents were in Africa for 16 years. And Jessie was living with my older sister. And um, she just, 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 just left. And um, she married someone when she was 17. She had already tried to, um, to end her life. And even then, you know, my parents uh, didn't, there are no huge red flags. Um, but she ended up marrying this young, disturbed boy. And um, uh, we had to kind of rescue her from that. And that was the beginning of just in it out. Of She um, had many cars. She went through a lot of houses. Um, she was married six, five times. I'm just saying this. She usually is here with us, and she's an incredible speaker. So this is not something that she wouldn't be, right. you know, telling you all herself. Um, so there is a big cost in her life. Um, and it's a real tribute to her and to Kaylin and to your brother and to your sister that uh, we, we now are a very close and viable family. Exactly. So, Stephen, in your book, uh, you write about your father's life with mental illness. Um, can you tell us briefly about that life, um, his unexplained absences from the family, and, and how the stigma of his mental illness affected you and your family? So imagine yourself back in Columbus, Ohio in the 50s and 60s. Dad was a professor of philosophy at OSU. My mom taught English. We had 50-yard line seats at Ohio Stadium to watch the Buckeyes. It was an idyllic academic athletic life, except that Dad, for three months or six months or at one point a year at a time, would vanish as though abducted by aliens in the middle of the night. No word of where he was. Didn't know if he was alive or dead. I tried to ask Mom. She couldn't say. Dad was in some of the country's worst mental hospitals. This had all started when he was 16 back in Pasadena. In his prohibitionist family, at 16 he thought he could, in 1936, end the worldwide fascist threat by flying. He was in a manic episode. He was grandiose. His flight from the roof of his home lasted 1.2 seconds. He survived the fall, started his course of brilliance and terrible hospitalizations. At grad school at Princeton, he worked with Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein. Yet six months later, finishing his dissertation, he spent half a year at Byberry, the worst mental hospital in the United States, and he had the delusion that he was in a concentration camp. This was just before the end of World War II. Well, that's crazy. He was in Pennsylvania, but the conditions at Byberry were such that 7,000 men 
were squeezed into space for 1,400, and conscientious objectors smuggled out photos of the starvations and beatings. So in some ways, his delusion had a metaphorical truth. He became a professor of philosophy, met my mother, a grad student in history and English. He told mom that he'd had a little trouble in high school and at Princeton. The family never discussed. When did mom know when she became pregnant with me and pregnant with my sister? Dad had full-blown episodes, wasn't around for either of our births. During the 50s and 60s, dad asked his lead doctor, what do I tell my darling children? I'm away a lot. They thought he had schizophrenia back at the time. And the doctor looked him in the eye and said, Professor Hinshaw, if your children ever learn of your mental illness and hospitalizations, they'll be permanently destroyed. You and your wife are forbidden from ever mentioning the topic. As I write in one passage in the book, what an oncologist today say, never tell your children about your cancer, they'll be permanently destroyed. Well, we'd sue the doctor for malpractice. Stigma and silence and shame were part of our family legacy until at my first spring break home from college from back east, dad pulled me in his study and said, son, perhaps you should learn something of the events of my life. I quickly changed my major to psychology. I had a mission. I was going to solve my father's problems and maybe mental health problems overall. But I was also terrified that I'd be next in mental hospitals because I didn't tell a soul. Roommates, girlfriends, are you kidding? Professors, I wouldn't be fit to be a clinical psychologist. It took a lot of time for me to supplement my research and teaching with storytelling and narrative because that's the complete picture. So doing what we all do now is equally part of the science of mental health and the science of stigma and coming out of the closet with the stories that will, I think, and hope, change the national dialogue. Right, and that's what we're about. Um, about three-quarters of serious mental illnesses first appear before the age of 25. And over the past decade in California, hospitalizations for mental health emergencies spike more than 40% among young people between the ages of 12 and 17. So, Kaylin... How old were you when you realized that something was wrong, something just was not right? Yeah, I think it was probably about 18 years old. And was it difficult for you to finally accept what you were being told? um, Yeah, in a fundamental way, yeah. How so? So. Well, um, well, I guess my answer is yes. Um, I mean, I'm still coming to terms with it. Um, and what it means to me. But, yeah, it was hard to accept. Sure. Still, still is. And yet you are speaking mm-hmm. out about it, which is, I think, takes yeah. a lot of courage. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Hannah, you are 17. Yeah. Right? You're in high school. Are you a senior now? I'm a junior. You're a junior. So will you talk to us about how you initially coped with mental illness? I was actually diagnosed at a very young age, and it was hard. They told me the two words, depression, PTSD, and me. I was sitting there, and a nine-year-old, I I saw a label. I didn't know what it meant, and I felt isolated. There was no one that I could talk to. How was I supposed to tell, you know, nine, ten-year-old friends, hey, my nightmares at night aren't just nightmares. I'm reliving traumatic events. 
And I was scared. I was scared to be different. And then growing up, that impacted me a lot, having to cover up the fact that I wasn't at school. I would say, you know, I was sick, but sometimes it was hard getting out of bed. I couldn't take care of myself. I, at one point, I couldn't get up to brush my teeth. And it progressively got worse. And how I started coping with it was when I started to actively talk to my therapist and my psychiatrist. And I asked them, tell me, how, how is this going to affect me? And how is this going to affect me in my life? What What is this? And they told me that, unfortunately, we can't tell you of any cure, but we can tell you that there are other ways. Um, definitely being mindful, being grateful, trying things such as meditation and being aware of the space around you. Um, and so waking up from a nightmare after a traumatic event, I would tell myself, you know, I'm not in that situation anymore. I'm in my room. I'm in my bed. I'm safe. All right. So we'll talk a little more about how you've also been able to use this in such a positive way. Um, Stephen, while the stigmas of illnesses such as cancer, HIV, AIDS, they're pretty much disappeared, uh, but not so with mental illness. So why is that? What is it about being labeled as someone with a thought or mood disorder that makes us recoil or feel ashamed? Well, I'm glad you and the Commonwealth Club have raised this issue, and we'll be having a weekly seminar for the next year on this topic, because it's, it's a huge issue. We know that attitudes toward gay marriage in our country have changed radically in the last 15 years, 37% in favor to 63% in favor. The Pew Trust data show that. American people know a lot more about mental health issues than in 1955, But stigma, the desire to keep distance, hasn't budged since that time. And in fact, three times more Americans today than in the 50s, if they hear the term mental illness, automatically link it with dangerousness and violence. So this is a huge issue, hence hence our seminar. It's threatening. I have to pull it together every day to, to keep my head on my shoulders. What if somebody's acting irrationally? Maybe I should keep them at bay. Maybe it's contagious. Throughout much of history, people with mental disorders were thought to have animal spirits or evil spirits. Then it was all caused by parents, bad parents. Today, there's, of course, a lot of work on biochemistry and a lot of work on genetics. You'd think that if we could just say mental illnesses are brain diseases, it would eradicate the stigma. We hold people less blameworthy, but we also think they're hopeless and want to keep our distance. The goal is humanization and contact storytelling as much as access to care and changed media images is the essential ingredient. So there are some very recent signs. Just a couple of days ago, the American Psychological Association released results from a recent Harris poll of about 1,100 Americans from last November. And for the first time in this random sample, the majority of people were more accepting of mental illness, and only a minority thought it was dangerous, treacherous, etc. I think we may be on the cusp of a sea change for a lot of the reasons we might talk about this evening. 47 states 
and the District of Columbia and the federal government have laws restricting the possession of firearms when it comes to the mentally ill, ranging from, and I quote, a person of unsigned, unsound mind, that's Alabama, a person adjudicated a danger to oneself or others, that's in Arizona, a person receiving inpatient treatment for a mental disorder, California, a person committed to a mental institution, that's federal law. The three states that have no gun restrictions regarding the mentally ill are Colorado, Kentucky, and New Hampshire. So setting aside whether anyone other than law enforcement should possess guns, setting that aside, do you all think that these laws unfairly stereotype the mentally ill? Do they send a message that the mentally ill are dangerous and violent? I want to challenge just the very words, the mentally ill, assuming it's all uniform. Well, you know, the physically ill are kind of sickly and shouldn't work. The physically ill? There's a whole range of illnesses and diseases. But the mentally ill, it's like one group of outcasts. So how do you feel about the laws that Well, let's go a little deeper. Are there categories within the realm of mental illness in which there is a risk for greater violence? If you have a thought disorder and believe that people are out to get you an illusion of control, that can be linked if you have antisocial personality disorder, certainly substance abuse. But if you treat those conditions, the risk for violence goes back down. Overall, on the other hand, this is never covered in the media, If you have a serious mental illness, you're five times more likely than anyone else to be victimized by violent crime. So the stereotypes and stigma still pervade. I think controlling guns is especially helpful to prevent suicide because we know that that lethal means is a a huge risk for, uh, quote, committing suicide. We shouldn't use those terms anymore. Killing yourself with a a means that will, will probably do the job. So... I think that we need to have rational controls on who can use guns, but to scapegoat the, quote, mentally ill for issues of the Second Amendment we need to take up is is stigmatizing. Anybody else have any comments on that? Because I'm going to move on to a question for Glenn. All right. So, Glenn, in the book Resilience, uh, Jesse wrote that after Kaylin became ill, she asked you, for a big favor. She asked you to do something about the stigma of mental illness. You had an idea eventually, but you asked your sister one question before you were willing to move forward. Do you remember what the question was you asked of her? I do. And, what and was I the asked um, Kaylin as well. Would, are, would you be willing to talk about your illnesses on a national platform? And the answer from your sister was? Yes. And Kaylin? Yes. <laughs> so, Glenn, what was your idea? <coughs> and how did you go about making it a reality? Who, who did you talk to? How did you come up with this model? I just have to say that that was 10 years ago. Yeah. And the fact that Kaylin and my sister had such incredible courage, without hesitation is the reason why we're all sitting here today.
And you will you will say that it's a day to day thing. It's you know it's not you know I'm going to start talking about it and everything's going to be fine. So I have the utmost respect and love for them for that very reason. Um, so when when they said to help, I thought, well, I'm in the entertainment business. We can do PSAs. I didn't know you know we raised and. Um, we had this wonderful uh, company that came up with the idea of that. That was our first PSA that you saw. It was, uh, I wanted to have an iconic public space knowing that everyone walking through Grand Central Station, one in four of them would be dealing with some sort of mental illness. So that's where we chose to do it. Um, and I cold called uh, Ron Howard because he had made a beautiful mind. And I said, would you be willing to direct a PSA um, with the four, about the four big ones, right? Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, and PTSD, we added as well. Um, and he said yes. And so that was the beginning. And um, Kaylin and Jesse, uh, you saw, they had their, their diagnosis, diagnoses, on a T-shirt on their chest for an entire day in Grand Central Station, um, and so that, and also my my daughter was in it, and Kaylin's sister, mm-hmm. and my mother, who was in her 80s at the time, said, "Oh, I wish I could have been in it too," <laughs> because you know we we really believe that it's a family affair, it's the family of man, and it's our individual families. So. Bring change to mind. This is your baby, really. You and Jesse, Kaylin. So where did you come up with the concept? From, from what they went through. Mm-hmm. Um, I say all the time, too, about, you know, well, I don't all the time, but uh, change is uh, such an important thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's... Um, we felt that the bottom issue was just talk about it because we had been in our family, no one talked about it and it was to great cost. So, you know, that simple concept, just talk about it is actually quite profound and right to the point. Um, So that's what we try to do. We try to talk about it. And if I'm going through an, an airport and somebody comes up and says, thank you so much for your work with mental health, I have it in my family. <laughs> they always say, oh, what was the, what's the diagnosis? <laughs> so let, let's, to get them to say it out loud. So let's talk more about Bring Change to Mind. And I, I want to talk with one of its beneficiaries and now one of its dynamic spokespersons, and that's Hannah. Um, Hannah... You're senior at Monta Vista High School in Danville, right? Uh, junior, excuse me, and president of your school's Bring to to Bring Change to Mind Club, right? So, how has Bring Change to Mind impacted your life? So, Bring Change to Mind is essentially a community where like-minded individuals come together, and with the common mission of ending the stigma against mental illness which is something that's extremely prevalent within the entire community and with high schools across America and in the world. And how it's helped me is 
I no longer feel like I have to conform to a societal ideal of what I should look like. Um, having to become someone, what someone that is academically successful. I, I don't want to feel like I have to look like that. Mm-hmm. And so coming to Bring Change to Mind, I feel accepted for who I am. I feel accepted that I have struggled and I will continue to struggle, but it's something that I want to do and I feel motivated to do. And so being in this community where we can grow together and continue to move forward each and every single day is something that's extremely powerful and has had a profound impact in my life. So, but let's talk about what happens. So you, you, your club meets, you all talk. As, as Glenn said, that's really the key, really talking about this, right? So, but we all know that young people can be cruel to one another, particularly those who are perceived somehow as being different. So how is the club perceived by the students at your high school? Um, is the stigma alive and well? Or have you all succeeded in destigmatizing mental illness among your fellow high school students? I think, unfortunately, there may be a stigma around mental illness for a long time. But within my school, my goal, rather than to completely take it away, change it so that people can look at it in a different perspective and to something that can be positive instead of something that hinders your performance in school, hinders your ability to talk to others. It can be something that we can use as motivation to continue to move forward and to do better. And and our school, it's... I think it's seen as something that is vital to just academics because we have all these high-performing kids in the Bay Area. They want to make their parents proud. And it's terrifying coming out to say, hey, well, I'm actually struggling really badly because we all have this perception, especially in my school, they associate mental illness with poor academic performance, which is definitely not always true. And so you have people who are struggling hard in school to make it look effortless and they're afraid to come out and afraid to admit, well, I, this is, this is not who I really am. I'm not actually, this was not effortless. And I think by opening up conversation within our clubs, when you see other kids who you thought were, you know, these straight-A students who just kind of went through school, powered their way through, and they're talking about their experiences. You sit there and you're like, wait, wait, hold on, me too. I feel the exact same way. And that's when conversation starts building and building. And so the the club at our school is gaining a lot of recognition, a lot of members, and it's it's had a very big growth this year, so... So, Stephen, you were a part of making this organization happen. How, how do we know that bring change to mind, the approach really works? I mean, good intentions are great, but is there any data, any research that measures the success of bring change to mind? A tribute to the entire organization is that it's committed to evaluating what we do with PSAs, with high school programs college programs. So we did a study when this thing started up down in L.A. a few years ago, a nice trial of kids who'd been in a club for a semester versus those who are about to join. We found that being in a club 
increased your knowledge about schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD a little bit, but it enhanced your attitudes a lot more and made you want to be closer to people with mental illnesses and you were doing more about it. We did this again up in the Bay Area over the last three years in a randomized trial. Some clubs started at the beginning of the year and others, by the flip of the coin, started midway through the year. And we did evaluations before, in the middle, and after the school year. And we found, although the effects were smaller, the same thing. Why were the effects smaller? Because a few years later, here in Northern California, even at the beginning of the school year, kids had more favorable attitudes. I think this generation is going to make a big difference. I think the high school club model bring change to mind is a big part of it, but the good aspect of social media and millennials and Generation Zers don't have the same negative attitudes we do. Let me say also that stigma is a huge social problem. Like all big social problems, it's not going to take one thing. We need to have better policies. We need to enforce the Americans Disabilities Act. We need to have real parity for mental health care, not just on paper. The media, thank you. We need to have a different set of media images, which is, of course, one of Bring Change to Mind's goals, too. We need to ensure access to evidence-based care. But above all, we need to humanize. Remember, those of you old enough to know, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s of the last century, if your relative died of cancer, you put in the obituary they died of natural causes or unknown causes because cancer was a shameful illness. You'd obviously brought upon yourself because of your low, low moral fiber or weak personal will. And today, cancer's a cause. The NFL behemoths wear pink knee socks two Sundays a year in honor of breast cancer. But we don't have the mental health color quite yet. We don't have people coming out quite yet. But again, I think we're at a sea change. And just to add a little bit more to the high school clubs that bring change to mind sponsors, the goal is not to teach the facts about mental illness. The goal is to have contact and speakers and the kids themselves design the curriculum. We have a guidebook. It's getting teenagers natural empathy and compassion and social activism in this combustible compound that I think is going to change the world. Interesting. There are 20, about 26,000 public high schools in the United States and about 12,000 private high schools. So I know one of the goals is to get out to these high schools with these clubs. Is, is that the, the plan? Is that what you all would like to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now we're in um, 16 states, right. and um, we have. It, it comes down to who who can you know pay for the clubs to be established. And in some uh, states, we have companies um, like Abercrombie and Fitch, who wants to be take care of Cincinnati. And, uh, and and in Indiana, we have the possibility, knock on wood, for it to go through the state government. So they will want every school to have a club. So I think it's going to be um, spread in all different ways, um, but I think it's inevitable. Great. And, and we need dollars, too, as well, to continue to evaluate the clubs, not just for the members of a club, but for all the other students at a school, right. and for the school administrators, and the parents and the city council. 
if we're going to show a spread of effect, we have to do really good right. basic research on that. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. So I want to pick up on something you said, Stephen. You used the word access. Um, not everybody can afford the top-notch health, mental health services that both your families were able to secure for your sister, uh, for uh, Kaylin, and, and for your dad. Um, so your family's economic status allowed you access to good mental health care. Over 41% of adults in the United States with a mental health condition only 41% received mental health services in the past year. And just over half of children with a mental health condition ages 8 to 15 received mental health services in the past year. So how do we bring equality to mental health care? How do we close the wealth gap so that there's equal access to mental health resources? I'm not, by the way, assuming that there are adequate enough mental health resources. I believe there are not. But those that exist, how do we make sure everybody is able to benefit? I think eventually it has to come from the government. I, I You know, I think we, we have to have government funding for uh, community mental health centers. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm going to, I mean... The, there's the Excellence in Mental Health Care Act, which I think is tremendously important. Um, it was eight states for a pilot project. Now they want to uh, add 11 more. And um, that hopefully will happen. Um, federal funding for uh, organizations on the ground that provide places for people to go to get help. It's a crisis in this country. Uh, another thing that me- that bring change to mind is is starting. It's still very much in the beginning phases. Is we want to uh, try to uh, encourage people to u- to go into it as a career, yep. um, behavioral health, and uh, we're going to have it on our website. We're going to you know do whatever we can to let people know what extraordinary careers they can have in this field. All kinds of careers. One of our scientific advisors um, was with the uh, NFL, and then she was with the, the ba- you know, professional basketball teams. Now she's working with the Navy SEALs. Never in her wildest dreams would she think that she would be, you know, in doing that fascinating work. Um, so I think we have to, it, it has to come from all different directions. I think that uh, you should have teams of high school kids going to Washington and meeting with the people who actually um, create the policy. Say, this is what we need in our communities. This is what we need in our schools. And one in four in the Congress is dealing with mental illness. That's right. Sometimes it's very evident. I really, I agree with Steve. Your generation and the generation, you're going to change, you're going to change it. You're going to change people's perception. But I think we've got to be tough about it and we've got to be res- resilient and we have to keep at it. I want to we, pick we up sometimes one. use the term cohort replacement. We need to replace old people like Glenn and me with young people who get it. <laughs> 
senior. This is, uh, this is died. <laughs> <laughs> I like the look. So I do want to pick up on one thing. There is a bill uh, that a California state senator has proposed to have loan forgiveness for those who want to go into the mental health field. That's right. So then they finish Bravo. their college yep. education. That's right. So California is doing a little something. So we have uh, questions, lots of questions, wonderful questions from the audience. So I'll ask as uh, many as I can in the time that we have. Uh, and this will go to anyone who chooses to answer. How do we make this a national conversation? I admire how Prince Harry has made this something government accepts and British society has embraced. Well, do you go top down or bottom up? We don't have a king and a prince in this country. I think we're going to have to, for now, have enough conversations going. How did breast cancer get to be the national cause it is? Women spoke up about it. They talked to their legislators. They talked to their doctors. They talked to one another until the firestorm of interest could no longer be ignored. This is what Bring Change to Mind is trying to do. Glenn hit it on the head. We just have to talk about it. We just have to put it on the table as an issue that no one can ignore. But at the same time, again, climate change is not a simple problem. Racial prejudice is not a simple problem. It's going to take top-down, bottom-up, middle-out, a variety of strategies. But boy, do we need more people in the mental health professions. And I think this is fabulous. Let me ask. We, we, we heard when we started Bring Change to Mind that stigma was the core problem. That's right. Uh, and that was the most difficult thing to change. So we said, okay, that's where we want to be. <laughs> but it's true. Um, I've learned, and back me up if I'm, if I'm articulating it right, you can change people's attitude, but you know you've won when you change their behavior. That's exactly right. And the thing is, I've learned as an actress to put myself into someone else's shoes. And I look at all of you in this room, I look at people walking on the street, every single one of you has a story and it's important. And I think it comes with, with you know, the value of, of who we are together. And, um, and, and the, knowing that stories are incredibly important to look someone else in the eye and say, this is what I've been through. Um, this is what I've learned. And you can do the same thing. So this I, is who I want to I address these, uh, this question from the audience to both to Kaylin and to Hannah. The, the person writes, as someone with a mental health disorder and looks normal, how can I be better, be a better advocate for those who aren't as lucky while not sharing more of my story than I want to? I think that's a hard question to answer, but I, can relate to it for the majority of my life I sat there fearful of exposing too much of myself because I was scared of getting hurt for being different and it the more that I didn't talk about the worse that it gets and there are a lot of kids in the club that have confided in me and said that they were a little nervous about talking about their own um, issues regarding mental health, but they want to contribute. And so they're there during the conversations. They engage. 
um, they don't always have to reveal too much about themselves. But I think those are little steps that people take. The more that you hear and the more that it's normalized to talk about it, the more people are inclined to start sharing their stories. And I think that is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Kaylin? Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that. I agree with that. Well, let me ask you this. Was it hard for you to wear a T-shirt um, that had your diagnosis on it? Was that a hard Yeah, honestly, no. And I didn't come into contact with anyone who, you know, um, you know uh, had anything to say about it. Um, so, yeah. Good for you. So Can I make a comment on sure. this? Coming out, opening up. Do I, with my own issues and my family's issues, wear a sandwich board about myself and my diagnoses and my father? Well, probably not. Rehearsal, timing, and support are the keys to disclosure. Choosing when and with whom and with the right support is everything. What we can't have is the default where you can't talk about it. That's what Glenn and I have learned from our families. I was going to say that I, I feel as though talking about mental illness, talking about my own mental illness is, um, is difficult because it's, it's, um, it's hard to, um, to analyze it. It's not, it's not like I'm not choosing to talk about it. So, um, there's that uh, kind of obstruction of, um, uh, the complexity of, of, uh, communicating, you know, and even when, um, when the moment is critical to communicate, you know, a lot of times it's, it's kind of inaccessible. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So this picks up on something you all just said. Uh, does a diagnosis of bipolar jeopardize future employment opportunities about, you know, wearing the signboard and letting people know, specifically in the area of teaching educational studies? So what happens? You come out and say, bipolar, I have this diagnosis. Is that going to be a problem? I think that is, I mean, I had the experience of going to uh, the um, lab of one of the top psychiatrists in this country, and I had lunch with his star post docs, and I was, uh, I had to go to the ladies' room, and the most articulate kind of star of them all, this this young woman, followed me into the ladies' room, and she burst out crying. And she said, I suffer from serious depression. I've had numerous ECT uh, therapies. I feel I can't mention it to anyone that I'm working with because I think it's going to affect my career. That's in a That's psychiatric right. lab. What did you say to her, Glenn? Well, at first I gave her a big hug. <laughs> um, I really, I, I don't know if I really knew what to say. Um, because if she felt she was putting her whole career on the line, I didn't know what to say to that. I think it, it really brought home to me why we're working on stigma. It's, it's the, it's, that's why it's the core problem. And maybe if she had decided to come out and talk about it, it would have made no difference. But is she going to risk that? I don't know. It's, um, hopefully we will 
create a world, students coming in. Some, if somebody had been bringing a bring change to mind club and gone to university, would, she would not have, right. you know, prejudice against somebody who has a mental illness. If they go to a, a, a you know, a, a graduate school, hopefully she would bring that knowledge and that willingness to talk, uh, you know, openly to whatever groups that she became a part of. That's where change is going to happen. Remember, the ADA, 29 years old and counting, prohibits the discrimination in our country against people with mental or physical disabilities in public spaces or the workplace. So technically, if you've got that job, you should be able to disclose and get the right accommodations. Most people bringing suits against a company under ADA are those with physical disabilities. And those are costly solutions. Only a tiny percentage do so for mental disabilities, even though the accommodation is flex time. Excuse me. If you have OCD, uh, agoraphobia, maybe working on the first floor rather than the fourth, it doesn't cost much of anything, but the shame is still so great that people don't want to talk about and it. I want to say that there are some companies, and I think, again, it's, it's keeping at it. Um, we work with the um, Hudson Bay Company, and they, they, are, um, they have had panels about mental health streamed to all their people. And I think there are going to be more and more companies who realize how the workplace is affected by people not being able to come to work and not, you know, feeling that there's sympathy and understanding and empathy where they work. And, and I think companies like that are really, really taking the lead and uh, hopefully other companies will follow. Yeah. I think it's particularly difficult in academia and the example you just brought up just really brings it all home yeah. that it's particularly hard for women to move in areas, postdocs, whatever. But then if you add this, well, the mental disorder or mental illness, um, I can understand exactly why she was terrified and didn't want to go forward. Um, mental illness is an equal opportunity disorder. Um, it strikes all races, ages, genders, socio- socioeconomic backgrounds. An estimated 26% of homeless adults staying in shelters live with serious mental illness. About 20% of state prison inmates and local jail inmates have a recent history of a mental health condition. African Americans and Latinos each use mental health services at about one-half the rate of white Americans and Asian Americans at about one-third the rate. So do you all have any ideas about how to address the impact of mental illness in our jails, our prison, in communities of color, and in homeless communities. You can just pick one, but do you have an, an idea about how um, we might deal with this? Hannah. So I'll pick the homeless community because I'm actually recognized as a homeless youth within uh, my district. And because of that, I'm actually on Medi-Cal, which is... California's Medicaid for low-income families. And because of that, it's been difficult. I've been turned away from mental health providers. Um, And I think getting to the point where you accept that you need help, being denied is 
a little traumatizing. But I think especially in these communities, I think we need to start with the students, start with preventative action. Um, I know it's going to cost a lot of money, but considering putting more support counselors into schools, even a psychiatrist, so that it is need-blind and it's not based off of your socioeconomic class. It is based off of the mentality that if a child or a person is looking for help, reaching out for help, that they should not be denied. But think of how much money that would save in the long run if people can be gainfully employed and maintain relationships. So in the stigma world in social psychology, psychiatry, etc., well, what if you have a mental health condition and you're in a racial minority group and you're low SES? These are double and triple stigmas. And there's a compounding of being under-resourced. The risk factors for mental health conditions are legion. Many serious ones have a a strong genetic liability. Trauma, poverty are also risk factors. We need to attack these problems at their roots. But we don't have nearly the same funding for mental health conditions as we do for cancer and other conditions because it's not a real illness. My dad, two years before he died, he was 73, I'd finally helped him get an accurate diagnosis of bipolar disorder after I finished college. He got on lithium. He didn't have those years of misdiagnosis under him. And we sat out at a poolside in Southern California, and he said, son, in his philosophical tone, do you know how often I'd wished in my life I'd had cancer? And I thought, is Dad having another episode? What, what? I said, Dad, what do you mean? He said, think what to a philosopher the term mental illness means. I've had an illness that was probably just imaginary. Maybe I made it up or I was at fault. If only I had cancer, I would have had a real illness and maybe I would have stopped blaming myself. Yep. Yep. And here I was in my 40s thinking I knew something about psychology and mental health. When you're started young as a kid or a teenager with brutal treatments and dad's family didn't have enough money growing up for anything other than public mental hospitals and even though he was a professor with a decent salary later, there were no private facilities when his episodes got really bad. This is a socioeconomic and racial and mental health and access to health equity for health issue that it's going to take your no pressure, your, <laughs> Hannah, yeah. Your generation to solve. Right, right. I think um, um, I read a fascinating book called um, Insane, um, uh, Insane Consequences. And basically it's about how 10% of the mental health community, mental illness community, are seriously mentally ill, and they're the ones that are falling through the cracks. Yep. Nobody wants to, to take care of them because they're difficult. They're, they, and those are the people that go into the... Uh, emergency rooms, and um, a lot of money is spent. That's right. um, it just, it just, it doesn't make sense uh, financially for that to happen. But I think it has to come from um, the government. It has to, it has to, and this is why uh, mental health has always been the bottom of the barrel. But we all have to speak up to get the government to listen. It's top down and bottom. And bottom. That's why I keep saying one in four of them. Right. <laughs> so here's a question. Um, 
uh, about uh, Bring Change to Mind. Could the high school program, Bring Change to Mind Club, be implemented in the middle schools? Studies show that anxiety and depression is an epidemic starting as early as seventh grade. What do you think? I think that developmentally, eighth, ninth grade is probably an ideal time to start. What's the leading cause of death for girls 15 to 19 in the world? Suicide. First world, second world, third world. Puberty's onset is ever earlier. Mental health conditions in girls rise precipitously at age 11 on. What could you do preventively in grade school? I think that's another issue. But um, I often think myself, what's the right age at which to start? And I think middle school, high school is, is an ideal time. Right. So, Hannah, here's a question for you. Are you willing to talk about your mental illness when you're applying to college, knowing that the stigma is still there? I've actually thought a lot about this. This is something that I talked to my brother about. Um, And I remember him telling me, you know, Hannah, you have a very powerful story. But unfortunately... If you don't frame yourself in the right way, colleges might look at it as a liability. And that word, liability, was scary to me. Um, because I think of all the experiences that I've gone through. This is, this is the strength that I've gained. This is something that cannot be replaced. And it does hurt a little bit to think about the fact that if I wrote about certain experiences, for example, in 2017, I tried to end my life and I ended up in an adolescent psych unit for around two months. How would colleges react to that? Would they think that I'm not able to handle that academic rigor? Are they, will I be, continue to be seen as a liability and will that affect my entrance to college? I actually remember one time talking about having depression to one of my classmates. The first thing he asked me was, oh no, so are you still going to college? Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there and I said, I hope so. Um, that was the plan. And he says, so how are you going to do it? And I said, well, how everyone else does it. I'm going to study hard, work hard, and I'm going to apply um, yeah, I'm a low-income student, but there there are a lot of ways. I'll take out loans. I'll do what I have to do to get a good education. And he sat there staring at me like, oh, um, well, I didn't expect that answer. <laughs> he said, yeah, I know. No one really does. <laughs> and I, at the end of the day, I can say that I'm reluctant, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Another question. Um, How do you quantify or can we quantify the effects of social media on the increase in mental illness and teen suicides? Oh, I don't know. I was checking my cell phone. Oh, uh, it's... uh, (laughs) Social media giveth and social media taketh away. There are some who blame 
the rising epidemic of depression and anxiety in teens on social media and smartphones, other people who say it's the savior, app-based treatments, and, and every opinion in between. I think it's a tool to be harnessed. Can you have good friends, well, on Facebook, that even dates me, in social media, on Instagram, do they replace real friends? We know that if you look to those kinds of outlets as your only source of social contact, that's probably not a good thing. But if those means are enhancing the friendships you already have, it's probably win-win. So I think we need to realize how pervasive social media is and harness it for the right strategies. Um, I don't think we can become Luddites anymore. Should parents have limits on phone use and middle schoolers, et cetera? Et cetera? That's another question, and the answer is, of course, yes. Social media is not the boon or bane of our existence. We have to learn to use it right. I, I feel that, um, and this is coming from um, an actor point of view, <laughs> that I've learned. Um, but I've also learned by programs that I, that, uh, in England um, that there's nothing that will ever substitute two eyes looking into two eyes. Right. Nothing. That is the most powerful thing that we have. Mm. <laughs> and I'm, I, I've, um, you know, we, 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 we're, we evolved because of empathy and altruism. And I think I've, I've, I've learned that the more you put various screens between you and another human being, the less empathy you'll feel. Um, and maybe you'll be less altruistic as well. Yeah. And Hannah, what about social media? And Kaylin, we're talking to the younger folks here. Well, Do you think it has any negative impact, positive impact on what we're trying to do? I'm not uh, a real user of social media, but I get the impression that um, it increases anxiety, um, which is, uh, you know, for for me it's the first step into um, disconnecting. So, um, yeah, that's my thought on it. Yep. Hannah? I think in terms of social media, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, I don't know if anyone in this room is familiar with memes. <laughs> memes. Yes. Um, there can be some good memes and there can be some bad ones too. But all in all, every every time there's a meme regarding mental mental health, mental illness, it's awareness that it, it exists. But sometimes it can't be positive. It isn't positive. Sometimes it can be, but rarely. Because so- I think... People try to make light of it. I think through social media, people can take it um, as a joke. There are various quotes that I can think from the top of my head that people say even in my classrooms where they've gotten this off of social media. Um, you know, school's hard. You know, I'm going to end it. Or I want to kill myself. And it is no longer carried the same weight as it should. And even back when I lived in Canada, I remember that time where I was in a really dark place, I confided in my friend. I told her that, unfortunately, I don't think that I can see a way out anymore. And it's not just school pressures. It's everything that's happening in my life. I don't there, like there is no way out at this point, and and 
I, I think the only way out is to end my life. And she said, me too. And, and I, I was concerned. I said, Oh, like, Oh no, you know, not you too. You know, I, I don't want to lose you. And, and she says, well, I like, I'm, I'm joking, but you know, there's, I, like, I can't even kill myself because I have too much homework. <laughs> and, and I sat there and I said, um, I, I don't think that you understand quite what I mean. And she says, oh, oh no, we don't worry. We all understand. We're all in these AP and IB courses. It is, it is hard for all of us. And, um, it, it's, it kind of invalidated how I felt. And I think that is another problem that we have. Sometimes it just isn't taken as seriously as it should. Right. It's a question for Stephen. Do you find that the stigma of mental illness is even greater among specific communities such as the African-American community or the Latino community? Unfortunately, stigma is pretty darn universal. People say, well, there'd be less stigma in Asian societies. They're collectivist rather than the individualist westernized United States. But in India, are you going to get a dowry if your son's going to marry a woman with mental illness? In Japan, there's a high suicide rate among executives, the high pressure. There's somewhat less stigma in African-American families against weighing more than the idealized amount for white girls, less stigma about eating disorders, about weight. But the sad fact is that stigma exists in every culture we've ever studied lower class, middle class, and upper class. Is it evolutionary? Are we wired to keep at distance those who look contagious or who might cheat us or look like they're from a a different group altogether? Maybe. Maybe that's why it's so persistent. But we're human beings. We have frontal lobes. We can reason, and we can connect and have empathy and compassion if we look each other in the eyes and if we use media in the right ways to connect. So... I think there is, uh, the, the, the bad news about this answer is there's not any group that's stigma-free, but there's hope for all groups if we do the work we're doing. So we, we have time for one last question. It's from our audience. We just launched online live peer support groups for people with anxiety and depression. What advice do you have for getting the word out? It says we, so we. someone in the audience, yes. Well, to get the word out, you can put your new thing on to bringchangetomind.org. <laughs> you know, we have an incredible community. Uh, an incredible website. An incredible website. Right. And I really believe in partnership. Um, I don't think any of us own any, any territory as far as stigma is concerned. And so I would get with somebody, they're... they're um, people down there, right there, who are part of Bring Change to Mind, and find out how you can partner with us. And, uh, you know, ideally we should have a network across this country where no one, the no one can fall through the cracks. So bravo for starting it, but let us help you and let us partner with you. It's fantastic. It's great. So please join me in thanking tonight's panel.
just want to say to all of you who are interested in Bring Change to Mind and want to uh, come to, we're having a Revels uh, in October. Um, go to bringchangetomind.org and buy a ticket and come. I'd like, yeah, great. I'd like to say one more thing, too. Sure, An hour ago, what did you think you'd learn about Hannah and her open disclosures about her mental health history? What did you think you'd learn about Kaylin? Do you want to see woodworking and painting like you've never seen? Go to Kaylin's website. He's one of the most gifted artists of this generation. When Glenn first cold-called me on the Berkeley campus seven springs ago when I was walking from a lecture to play basketball, and she said, this is Glenn close-calling, and I said, yeah, really? (laughs) And we met a month later, and Glenn said... You know, I was growing up, I forget which relatives, a grandmother and a great aunt. Well, they were in spas. Well, they were in mental hospitals, but your family never talked the truth, right? I thought it was a spa. You thought it was a spa. Because she talked about the chef. (laughs) (laughs) And with my dad uh, given up for crazy, thank God he had tenure, he would have never kept his job at Ohio State for 49 consecutive years. What do you have to learn about mental health? You have to learn about the people behind the stereotypes. And I hope we all did that tonight. So, thank you so much. Before we leave, we'd like to, to share with you one final video about Bring Change to Mind's high school program. Going into middle school, I was diagnosed with depression, PTSD, and anxiety. My second attempt at ending my life was March 2017. When I was in eighth grade, I struggled from depression. Nobody wanted to sit with me at lunch. People would text me on social media and bully me. You know, everybody talks about how there's always light at the end of the tunnel, but, you know, when you're struggling from depression, you don't really see it. I confided in a classmate about what I was going through, and she told me that she's part of a club called Bring Change to Mind, and it had a goal of ending the stigma against mental illness. Ultimately, when I joined Bring Change to Mind, that's when I was able to work towards being a happier person, working towards being less depressed. Adolescents spend a great deal of their time learning from each other. Younger high school students learn from older high school students, and in that way, they can learn how to effectively minimize stigma and foster mutual respect. We give presentations about what mental illness is and work on coping mechanisms to counter the stress that people go through. With Bring Change to Mind, this peer-to-peer model, it allows students who are dealing with the same exact issues, who maybe come from a different background or a different school, to come together to build a support system because ultimately that's what we need. The club has brought awareness to mental health and mental illness and it's definitely been an opportunity for students to get the support that they need. Each and every club member, we're all close friends of each other, and it didn't used to be that way. We come from all different backgrounds and all different stories behind why we joined the club, and yet we're all here for a united issue. Bring Change to Mind has saved my life. I'm no longer alone anymore, and I no longer feel that way ever. And so, you know, thank you. Thank you, Bring Change to Mind, for giving me the platform to be able to make change. As somebody who suffered, I don't want to see anybody else suffer. So, thank thank you all. Thank you all again for joining us tonight and for all of the important work 
bring change to mind is doing for communities all over the world. I'm Judge Ladaris Cordell, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Good night.